Welcome to War Room, the official podcast of the U.S. Army War College Online Journal, graciously supported by the Army War College Foundation. Please join the conversation at warroom.armywarcollege.edu. We hope you enjoy the program. Make sure not to miss a single podcast and subscribe to A Better Peace, the War Room podcast at iTunes, Google Play, or your favorite subscription service. The views expressed in this presentation are those of the speakers and do not necessarily reflect those of the U.S. Army War College, U.S. Army, or Department of Defense. Welcome to A Better Peace, the War Room podcast. I'm Ron Granary, professor of history at the Department of National Security and Strategy at the U.S. Army War College and podcast editor of the War Room. It's a pleasure to have you with us. On 9th to 11th May 2023, the U.S. Army War College will host the second annual Strategic Land Power Symposium at the Army Heritage and Education Center here in Carlisle, Pennsylvania. Notable guest speakers will include the commander of U.S. Army Pacific, the chief of the National Guard Bureau, and the commander of Third Corps, bringing together students, scholars, and practitioners. The Strategic Land Power Symposium aims to advance the concepts surrounding the role of strategic land power in cooperation, competition, integrated deterrence, and joint all-domain operations by presenting original research to senior leaders about how land power can help achieve future national objectives. As part of the symposium, Army leadership had asked the United States Army War College Strategic Land Power Integrated Research Project faculty to address aspects of the future role of strategic land power. Taking up that challenge, 12 members of the U.S. Army War College, class of 2023, have participated in the Integrated Research Project, or IRP, as part of their Master's Degree in Strategic Studies research requirement, and will be presenting their results to the symposium. To amplify their work, A Better Peace has organized multiple podcast sessions with those students to discuss their projects, their relationship to the Strategic Land Power Symposium, and possible implications for the future of U.S. security policy. This is the first of such sessions, and today's topic is long-range fires with Colonel Paul Lashley and Lieutenant Colonel Andrew Hersick. Colonel Paul Lashley is a field artillery officer with previous assignments in 1st Infantry Division, 2nd Infantry Division, the National Training Center, the Human Resources Command, the 75th Field Artillery Brigade, and the 5th Security Force Assistance Brigade. Lieutenant Colonel Andrew Hersick is a field artillery officer with previous assignments in the 82nd Airborne Division, 7th Special Forces Group, 18th Airborne Corps Staff, 18th and 75th Field Artillery Brigades, Alaskan Command, and the Army Staff. Both of them are members of the U.S. Army War College Class of 2023, which means they have also recently successfully completed their oral comprehensive exams, for which I congratulate you both. And welcome to a better peace to both of you gentlemen. Uh, thanks for having us. Um, we're going to provide, uh, you know, a brief overview of the research project that we've uh, we've co-authored. Sure. Um, we'll talk through what what we wanted to look at in terms of long-range fires and the implications of a theater army and how to integrate them. And we'll talk about our findings and recommendations, and then some just some concluding remarks of where we think how this research research can be valued. That's great. Go right ahead. Yeah, so. By the end of 2023, the Army will field the first batteries of long-range hypersonic weapon, or LRHW, and mid-range capability, or MRC. These new units will provide surface-based precision fires capability beyond 300 kilometers for the first time since 1991, and represent a bit of a paradigm shift away from the theater Army's reliance on air and maritime component long-range fires 
to strike theater-level deep targets. Now the theater army will have not only the ability to strike its own critical targets, but also the ability and the mission to strike critical targets in support of the Joint Force Commander, along with the Air and Maritime Component Commanders. Effective fires integration at the theater army level will now be more important than ever to support the joint warfighting concept, which requires fires from all domains and services without restrictions. So enabling fires integration at the theater army level requires a capable theater force field artillery headquarters to provide command and control, joint force targeting support, fire control, protection, and sustainment when multiple strategic fires capabilities are allocated to a theater of operations. And this theater force field artillery headquarters provides a critical command and fire control link between the theater army and multiple subordinate task forces that provide these theater level strategic fires. And so when we looked at the, you know, the findings and recommendations for integrating uh, these new capabilities within the theater army, um, what we, what we came to understand is that with long range uh, hypersonic weapons and mid range capabilities, there's going to be a number of opportunities at the policy level. Um, but they also present some escalation risks as a strategic non-nuclear weapon. So it really led to three policy level considerations prior to employing this land-based hypersonic or cruise missile system. So first, um, a competitor or adversary's perception of a threat from these systems may be enhanced when their actual capabilities are unknown or unpublished. Secondly, military leaders and policymakers must consider the perceptions and responses from third-party states before they employ these particular strategic capabilities. And then third, you know, the U.S. has to consider potential indirect actions that an adversary might take up against our allies and partners um, in response to the U.S. deploying or, or, or posturing these strategic capabilities. Yeah. So, and then, so those are the policy considerations. And then we look at um, joint force integration for these particular capabilities. Uh, we believe it requires a force field artillery headquarters that has an adequate structure and authorities to perform targeting cross-component strike coordination, protection, and risk management. And so as they develop the multi-domain task forces where these particular capabilities reside, there are um, they've generated two different structures in the European theater and then in the Indo-Pacific theater. It's a, an intermediate headquarters that resides between the theater army headquarters and the multi-domain uh, task forces. And so the one in Europe is the Theater Fires Command, uh, which is a, a two-star-led uh, command that has a, a staff to manage those requirements for the NBTFs. And then within the Indo-Pacific, there's a multi-domain command that is it's charged with the same responsibilities and duties as the Theater Fires Command. <laughs> So in terms of a headquarters that can now take these strategic capabilities and integrate them into the joint force, we believe that's where the, the right level for a force field artillery headquarters would reside. But we also researched the structure behind those two and what, what kind of capabilities does that structure bring in terms of the integration of, of the capabilities. And so we looked at both the theater fires command and the multi-domain command They've got the same mission statement. They've got the same roles and responsibilities and doctrine. However, their structures look very different. Um, and so we looked at the different, the different structures, what they have, what they don't have, uh, and came up with a, this idea of standardizing 
the structures of the, the theater fires command and the multi-domain command uh, to add a more robust uh, fire control cell or element, um, adopt some of the targeting structure from one into both, and then uh, retain some of the capabilities like a future operation cell that resides in the, in the multi-domain command, but not necessarily in the theater fires command. Um, it's implemented an integrated air tacking order at the combatant command level to enhance deliberate and dynamic targeting processes by providing a shared understanding and synchronization of capabilities across all domains and time and space would reside, those responsibilities would reside at that theater fires command, that multi-domain command level. Uh, and then we believe that if the theater force field artillery headquarters is properly resourced, it's again, best positioned to manage that theater army's apportionment and allocation of inputs into that integrated um, air taxing order process. Thank you. Thank you, Paul. Thank you, Andy. So uh, I have a, a, a broad question, which uh, some of our listeners may be familiar with the structure of, of combatant commands and multi-domain task forces um, and theater armies. But I want to, for those who don't, um, where exactly, um, uh, sort of physically, when we're talking about this, right, if the, the combatant commander uh, is at the top of this, or the, the combatant command is at the top of the pyramid here, um, where is the multi-domain task force? Where is the theater army? Are they parallel to each other or is one currently placed above the other in the overall structure? Sure. Um, so just to go from, from big to small, yeah. we'll start with the theater army being, you know, the, the pinnacle no, of right. it. Um, the next command down would be either be the theater fires command mm -hmm. or the multi-domain command. Okay. Okay. And so again, in, in Europe, it's a two-star level command right. um, in Indo-PACOM. It's a one-star command right now, um, but but just subordinate to that would be the multi-domain task force, which is a brigade, a brigade level organization led by an 06. By an 06. So when you think about the way that you're imagining a, a more effective uh, command that can make the sort of targeting decisions, can deal with the policy questions, do you see that as, uh, as being in addition to um, these existing structures, do you see some kind of combination of existing structures in order to do this? Um, or are we sort of adding yet, because uh, some people would say, right, are we adding just a third level when it sounds like we already have two levels under the theater army that could uh, that could get into this discussion? Go ahead, Andy. No, to clarify, yeah. you know, it's our belief that the theater fires command in Europe and the multi-domain command in the Pacific are are best positioned to perform the role of the theater force field artillery headquarters with some uh, specific structure enhancements mm -hmm. and to to perhaps clarify why we think the theater force field artillery headquarters is so important is because based on the situation a theater may have more than one multi-domain task force allocated to that theater for instance, if in the Pacific theater, there are two or three multi-domain task forces with corresponding three long range fires battalions, yeah. multiple MRC batteries, multiple LRHW batteries, that's really where we see the force field artillery headquarters, you know, providing that ability to integrate those systems into the joint force. Makes a lot of sense. So now I take another step is both of you are experienced field artillery officers. Um, uh, 
when we talk now about this move towards these new forms of long range fires, there's the question of how much is new technology driving the need for new forms of of uh, command um, in the sense of right, the further, the longer range, the fire, when you think, talk about hypersonics, right, you're much further away than a, a typical uh, artillery battery might be um, when it's, when it's part of a, of a, connected to an infantry division. And so how have you two in your experiences as field artillery officers seen the way that technology, changing technology may be driving the need for changes in, changes in doctrine, changes in uh, strategy? With both of the systems, uh, MRC and LRHW, operating at you know much longer right. ranges than, than previous, it's heightened the need for kill chain prosecution speed. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, in order to actually ensure an effective target strike, all of the cross-component coordination through all the multiple levels of headquarters that, that Paul you know, previously discussed, all that has to take place while a sensor, in whichever domain that sensor resides, has to maintain custody of the target before it moves yeah. or moves out of range. All that coordination has to happen quickly so that that missile can fly from the, you know, from the battery location to the actual target area. Yes, hypersonic missiles are very fast, but... Distance is still distance, and it still takes time for that missile to uh, move from the firing point to the actual target. Right, right. How how different is it, has it been in your experiences as field artillery officers to um, to go from talking about, say, your your standard one hundred fifty five millimeter artillery piece to talk about hypersonic missiles that have ranges of many uh, much longer ranges? Um, does that change your the 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 role of the uh, of the officers on the ground. So I, Paul and I had kind of discussed this previous. Yeah. It, on one hand, yes, that you know you're conceptualizing strategic level effects that are originating from a field artillery battery commanded by a. Captain. Yes, that, that's that's exactly what I was thinking about. That's a that's a big burden to put on even the smartest captain. But. No. Both the LRHW and MRC are certainly exquisite capabilities. Mm-hmm. But at the end of the day, they are similar to other fire support systems. Mm-hmm. Yeah. They have to be in the right place at the right time with the right munitions to achieve the desired effects on the target. And as previously stated, the C2 nodes involved in that process must be able to close the kill chain rapidly enough to assure an effective target strike. So conceptually, it's just the prosecution of the kill chain. Mm -hmm. The sensor acquires the target, sends it to a C2 node, then sends it to the right shooter, and the target is prosecuted. Now we're simply talking about targets at much longer range, different types, and certainly will have higher level operational and at times even strategic effects. Right. Yeah, and to add on to what, what Andy's saying, that's, you know, when we look at these two particular intermediate headquarters, the Theater Fires Command and the Multi Domain Command, um, to have the strategic context for positioning those assets. Mm-hmm. Um, when we look at um, 
non-nuclear strategic assets that have escalatory um, impacts. And so if you have the, I think that right headquarters structure that is read in enough to the strategic, the strategic context of, this, of the situation of the theater, um, you have now, again, as a force field artillery headquarters, you're providing positioning authority. That's one of your, your basic functions of that headquarters. Yeah. So if you if you're positioning with the strategic context and you're not, you, you can't provide as much leeway down to say a a, a battery commander or captain that you could in a very conventional sort of non strategic force for positioning yeah. because you're going to have now you know state level um, state level implications for um, escalation right. and, and so that's again why we look at that's the right, we think that's the right headquarters to provide that contextual guidance um, down to even even a battery level, which it, it may seem a little ridiculous, but when you're talking about a system that from, you know, Luzon or Okinawa can both cover the Taiwan Strait, that, that becomes, there's some strategic implications. Right. Well, and I'm glad that you're moving exactly where I wanted to, to ask you guys this too, is that this, these questions of strategic implications and escalation, right? If we're talking about weapon systems that at least theoretically, or at least let's say at least from the, from the perspective of the outside observer, could be carrying conventional warheads, could be carrying something else, right? Um, how do we, I guess this becomes, this is where you get into that policy question, right? If I'm the, if I'm the president of the Philippines and I've got, a, there's such a battery of station in my country and I'm saying, and at the last minute I say, you know, I'm a little concerned that an adversary, when they see this, this missile being launched, if they, assuming they see it being launched, they won't know what kind of warhead it is. And they might feel the need to escalate their response more quickly, right? They're not going to wait until it hits the ground to see what, what it was carrying. And so um, how do we imagine the, uh, both the sort of communication within, uh, within, the, within the kill chain, but also in this policy discussion about how we manage, you know, we might know whether we're escalating, but of course our adversary may not. And our adversary may make assumptions that are incorrect. How do we, how do we manage those kinds of signaling problems? Yeah. So the example we looked at was the, uh, Terminal High Altitude Air Defense System deployment to South yeah. Korea in 2017. Um, in response to that strategic system's deployment, Beijing initiated an aggressive coercion campaign against South Korea, leveraging economic, diplomatic, and information instruments of national power, uh, including cyber attacks, in an attempt to force Seoul to withdraw its support for the THAAD deployment. Ultimately, you know, wide range of estimates, but uh, could have cost South Korean economy somewhere between six and a half and $24 billion. And so that was one of the areas that we looked at of, you have to remember that the enemy always gets mm -hmm. a vote, mm -hmm. right? The competitor or adversary's perception of the threat will drive their response, uh, regardless of facts or statements to the contrary. For the policy level and really for the combatant command level, you have to keep in mind, even prior to the launch that you described, yeah. Ron, just the positioning of that, uh, that asset forward, there may be more than just 
two or three states involved. And really, you have to consider potential actions against the the host nation, if you will, right? Because that's the the easiest portion to target is their uh, access basing and overflight. So without using any sort of military force, an action could be taken against, you know, Paul used the example of the Philippines earlier. Simply uh, economic coercion against the Philippines may end up in a revocation of access basing and overflight uh, authorization for an LRHW or MRC system. And, and now we don't have, have the capability in the right place at the right time. So uh, a couple of the things that we looked at, you know, from the policy level, uh, the secretary level public statements and diplomatic communications that have clear and consistent messaging of intent, purpose, and duration uh, are important in terms of managing potential adversary misperception. But as we get down to the theater army level and below, it's vitally important to ensure that all actions concerning those systems are in line with those public statements of intent. In other words, uh, it's probably a bad idea to just move strategic fire systems around in an aggressive posture when their stated intent or purpose is simply, uh, you know, deterrence or or an exercise. So, so that's again why we think that the force field artillery headquarters is so important to be able to translate those strategic objectives all the way down to tactical actions by the batteries and help manage that misperception in any of the uh, strategic. It makes goals. sense. Go ahead, go ahead, Paul, please. Yeah, no, Ron, Rob's just going to add on to to what Andy's saying here, but. I mean, you can boil it down to what you don't want is that battery commander taking the long range hypersonic weapons on a road <laughs> march. Right. Right. And creating, creating this, uh, uh a strategic, uh, es- escalatory act. Right. And all he's trying to do or she's trying to do is exercise the systems, do the maintenance, whatever it is, but it's, you have to be that careful when you're talking strategic, capabilities right. right these long-range capabilities that have strategic implications it's um it'll, it'll be all about the messaging so if you're in the information space just like you're moving a carrier strike group around into the indo-pacific yep. you almost have to treat a, a battery like this with the same level of um, communication in the information space so that what you're sending is getting received the right way by our competitors and right. potential adversaries. it is it is one of the great paradoxes right we talk about this uh in theories of war and strategy, we talk about coercion theory, that deterrence does require communication. And I guess mm-hmm. one also has to worry is if deterrence, deterrence can be too good, right? Because somebody might not like being deterred, right? They might, they might dislike it so much, they'll be like the Chinese in responding to the THAAD in South Korea, or say the way the Russians responded to the, the possible positioning of anti-missile uh, battery, missile defense batteries in Eastern Europe way back in 2008, 2009, right? That uh, the, the mere stationing of such forces, which you don't want to do in secret because you don't want your adversary to discover them and think that means you're planning something, but to be able to message this. Do you think that the United States Army is, right now is, uh, let's say, both aware enough and trained enough to deal with those kinds of information responsibilities? 
No, sorry, that not that I'm, I'm not I'm not asking you both to criticize the army and endanger your careers, of course. But uh, but I am curious whether you, you know, when you where, how how well you think these informational questions are integrated into the 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 discussions about deployment and use of such forces. Go ahead, Paul, or Andy. Sorry, go ahead, Andy. Yeah, so I would lead off with just a little bit of strategic context for both sure. systems to help frame this discussion. First of all, any ranger capability that we're talking about on here is unclassified and publicly available information. True. So a long range hypersonic system uh, deployed to the United Kingdom is capable of striking Moscow in under 40 minutes. An LRHW positioned on Guam can strike Shanghai on mainland China. A mid-range capability positioned anywhere in the Philippines has a capable of striking land or maritime targets anywhere in the South mm-hmm. China Sea. Mm-hmm. So these systems are exceptionally capable. Add to the fact that currently, at least publicly, neither the U.S., Russia, or the PRC has the capability to defend against hypersonic right. weapons. That's why your question is very appropriate, because first, before we start messaging at any level, we need to understand the perception of the threat. Right. I would look at this messaging discussion has to start at the policy Mm -hmm. level. This is not a unilateral U.S. Army decision to simply... Uh, deploy a hypersonic battery really anywhere outside of the continental United States because our allies, partners, competitors, and adversaries will be watching. And it has that, the potential to create a misperception. So I think that messaging has to start at the policy level, then at the combatant command level, all the way down through the theater army, force field artillery headquarters is really that last level that's managing that information. And really at the force field artillery headquarters level is where it's exceptionally important to make sure that the actions and words are in fact aligned Mm -hmm. so that what uh, we have said from the policy level is the, intent and purpose of uh, this deployment actually looks like what's happening on the ground. I do think with the theater fires command and multi-domain command that they are the correct level of headquarters to really ensure that those words and actions are aligned there. Paul, you want to add anything to that? Uh, Yeah. So just, Working in the Pacific for the last couple of years with the Security Force Assistance Brigade, um, you know, gaining access and, and achieving presence in multiple countries throughout that particular region, um, it's there, there's always a good process behind it, right? Because you're you're not only working through your whatever army headquarters you're working for, you're working through Department of State, you're working through the country teams at the embassy, you're working through your, the your host nation. Um, to to align all those things, right? And I think it's this, you have to take the same approach when it comes to the positioning of these, you know, exquisite capabilities. Is not only us from the policy perspective understanding 
um, what, what the weapon systems do, what their purpose is for posturing, but explaining that to Department of State so they understand um, what we're asking to achieve by, by forward positioning some of those assets, but then also with their partners and allies so they understand what risk they're undertaking um, so that, that we can all, I think, you know, achieve whatever results we're looking for, um, not only through the Army systems, but through the partners and allies that exist, you know, whatever theater you're right. talking about. That makes about. a lot of sense. Well, and uh, we're, we're almost to the end of this conversation, believe it or not, but I wanted to, uh, since you, you've set the your project very well, and, and I know you're getting ready to make your presentation to the uh, symposium itself, but I want to ask each of you, how has your experience in the IRP um, uh, how's it, how's it gone as a part of your, uh, educational experience here at the war college? And how do you feel that it has, uh, has fit in with that larger experience as a student at the war college? Uh, I'll let you decide who gets to go first. <laughs> Paul, go ahead. Yeah. Um, so the strategic land power IRP, um, looking back, what has it been now? Eight months since I saw yeah, imagine that, I guess, I, or, or whatever. <laughs> Um, so I, the reason I pursued it, cause I looked at this year as we get this, we get this year to, to experience and learn with, with a, with a peer group around us. Right. And, you know, you could, you could look at doing an SRR, write it in a vacuum, do a lot of research and, and provide that as, as the thing that you're going to do. I looked at it as an opportunity to continue that shared learning with, with my peers. And so I, I enjoy the seminar setting. And I enjoy discussing the topics um, and, and then learning from one another. And so when I looked at doing this, I thought, you know, I could I could continue that experience um, in, a, in the seminar setting. I can write this paper, but I can also get perspectives as we go through the year of writing it. And not only, you know, did Dr. Campbell bring in a lot of subject matter experts to discuss topics with us that really aligned with the courses that we were, were in. So we got a little broader understanding of that, but we spent period, you know, periods of time presenting, here's where we are with our, our project. Here's the findings we're looking at here. You know, we think that we can implement these findings this way. And then you have 10, 11, 12 other people that can say, have you thought about this? Have you thought about, or in my research, I found this thing. And it may be helpful for you. And so it was almost like a village was writing this project instead of just me and Andy. Um, and so I found it very helpful um, and, and also professionally and personally rewarding to, to go through the experience with the entire RP to, to produce something that we think will have some impact um, for the, the future force. Outstanding. Andy, what do you think? For me, it was a much like Paul it, a good opportunity to research and work on some relevant challenges for the Army, especially as we look at large-scale combat operations at the theater Army level yeah. and above. In, in full disclosure, my last duty position, uh, I was the fire support branch chief up in the Army G8, so managing the fire's portfolio under which the long-range hypersonic weapon and mid-range capability reside. I got to be a part of a lot of conversations regarding, you know, the whole dot MLPFP spectrum with regard to these systems. And frankly, I never heard a lot of discussion about 
integrating the system into the joint force. And as I was trying to manage uh, lots of army money and uh, to the point where my head hurt. I can only imagine, lot, Andy. It, yeah. It, often I wondered about integration into the joint force. Uh, this IRP gave me the opportunity to do a little further research, perhaps add to the body of knowledge and get to write a paper with Paul. Uh, we, we've attended all PME together since is uh, that right? career course. So that's right. Is, that, is I, you know, I've, I have not heard that even though I know that, you know, people at, you know, students at the war college are at roughly the same, uh, spot in their careers. I have, uh, you guys might be the first pair that I've heard of actually been through it all. Do, are you aware of this being common in any other, uh, any, anybody else in your class? I don't know that we've asked anybody. <laughs> fair enough. Fair enough. Well, that's great. Well, you see, and, and the idea of the integrated research project, we require everybody to do some kind of research, right? You know, Paul, you mentioned the SRR, the strategic, the strategy research requirement. Um, but it can be anything from an individual paper to working within an integrated research project to group papers like this. And, um, and it's always interesting to hear why people choose what they choose. People like to work in different ways and what they think they get out of it. Um, last question for both of you is, um, what's going to happen after you, uh, after you successfully complete this, I'm going to knock on wood and say you will successfully complete your IRP and you'll make a great presentation to the symposium. Um, what's next, Andy, what's next for you after the U S army war college? If you can tell us <laughs> right now, my next assignment, I'll be the chief of training in the force com G three, five, seven, uh, down in North Carolina. Currently, I believe it's still Fort Bragg soon to be Fort renamed Liberty, yeah. Fort Liberty. Uh, looking forward to joining that team and, and learning yet another portion of the army enterprise. And you've been, and obviously you've been there before with 18th Corps and with the 82nd airborne. I have spent <laughs> a lot of time at Fort Bragg. Uh, as a matter of fact, it took an act of Congress to get me off of there the first time. Uh, the BRAC move for 7th Special Forces Group down to Eglin Air Force Base was the first time that I left Fort Bragg and not headed to Interesting. Iraq. All right. Well, so now you'll go, you'll go back and and uh, well, enjoy Fort Liberty. It should be an, an interesting experience. They, they didn't rename Fayetteville, so you're okay. You'll be able to find it on a map. <laughs> Paul, Paul, how about you? What's next for you? For me, so I'll, I'll head down to D.C. after this. Um, I've got a job with the joint staff working in the J-35, um, and I'll get probably pinpointed once I once right. I get there and sign in, um, but I, I know I'll be working in that directorate somewhere. Great. Well, thanks to both of you for coming on. Good luck with the rest of the IRP and the rest of your, your time here at the War College, and, uh, and good luck going forward. Thanks to Paul Lashley and Andy Hersick for uh, joining us here on A Better Peace. And thanks to all of you for listening in. Please send us your comments on this program and all the programs. We're always interested in hearing from you. Send us your suggestions for future programs. Please take a moment and subscribe to A Better Peace because you know deep in your heart that that's what you really want to do is to subscribe to A Better Peace. And after you have subscribed to A Better Peace, please take a moment to rate and review this podcast on your podcatcher of choice because that's how more people can find out about us and can discover deep in their heart that they want to subscribe to a better piece. Uh, this conversation is over, but we look forward to welcoming you to the next one. And so until next time, from the War Room, I'm Ron Granary. And that concludes our program. Thank you for listening. 
The views expressed in this podcast reflect those of the speakers and do not necessarily reflect the views, policies, or positions of the U.S. Army or the Department of Defense. Let us know what you think. Provide us your feedback, comments, or suggestions through our webpage at warroom.armywarcollege.edu. And have a great day.